Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. Tonight we are covering something that's very important for uh, fellows and those in training and those involved with fellowship training. Uh, it's Fellowship and Training Influx, and it is April 21st. At this point worldwide, we have 2.5 million cases of coronavirus with 176,000 deaths. Uh, on the good news, 700,000 people have recovered worldwide. And in the United States, um, 823,000 cases with 45,000 deaths and 75,000 uh, people who have recovered. We have three really wonderful people on tonight uh, who I'm sure will give great feedback, um, not just to each of us, but also to the fellows um, in attendance from Bascom Palmer Eye Institute. We have uh, Dr. Thomas Albini uh, from the Duke Eye Center. We have Dr. Sharon Fakret, and a man who is known only by his first name, uh, mainly because we can't really pronounce his last name in all instances, uh, but from Stanford uh, Eye Institute, we have Prithvi uh, Mirathan Jaya. Uh, thank you all for joining me uh, and welcome to the New Retina Radio COVID-19 coverage. Uh, let's start out with you, Tom. Uh, you are in Miami. Um, what is the overall impact of coronavirus uh, in the Miami community? And you may need to unmute yourself. There we go. Uh, what's the Tom. overall impact to the healthcare system down there? You know, we've, we've done better than projected. So uh, if we look at our curve, it's pretty well flattened. We're uh, at 200 deaths right now. Um, and we have a pretty good inventory of ICU beds and of hospital beds uh, still at our disposal. We were initially projected to hit our peak uh, in about two weeks, but the models have been revised. And now we're saying that we may be at our peak now or that we may have uh, just come off of our peak recently. So, you know, it's been a major disruptor for the Baskin Palmer Eye Institute. We're down to about 20% of our normal volume. It's been a, a tremendous disruptor to the fellowship. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different types of surgery the fellows aren't doing. Um, and it's been a major disruptor to local businesses and the economy. But, uh, but you know, thank goodness we, we seem to be doing better than, it, than had been initially anticipated. Tom, do you think that has anything to do with the warm weather in Miami? There's some thought that maybe temperature has an effect on the virus. I've thought a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I sure hope so. You know, the, the temperature and the humidity. We've had very high humidity. And a, a lot of these viruses, uh, the other uh, coronaviruses, and I think this is true for influenza also, don't carry as well in hot, humid uh, climates. So that that may be... Uh, partially to our benefit, but um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I think that that we've had really good social distancing. We were late to get on board, uh, and we may be early, unfortunately, to come off, which I think would be a huge mistake. Uh, famously, you know, we opened the beaches in Jacksonville uh, over the over the last weekend. Uh, probably not the right way to go, but uh, 
but uh, I think those those efforts have really made a big difference. And Sharon, in in North Carolina at Duke, um, what is the status of the healthcare system there, and then specifically ophthalmology and retina? Well, throughout Duke's three hospitals that we have, they've done about 7,000 tests so far, and the results have come back on 96% of those tests, um, and about 6% have been positive. So here uh, throughout the Duke Health System, we have a little over 50 inpatients. Um, half of those are in the ICU, and half of those are on ventilators. So we have also a lot of ICU capacity remaining, a lot of um, hospital beds available. But the Duke Eye Center has, and the entire hospital system has come to a screeching halt um, as of the middle of March uh, for all elective procedures, clinic and operating room. And Prithvi in, in Stanford, in Palo Alto, um, what's the status there from a hospital standpoint and then furthermore from the ophthalmology standpoint? Thanks, John. So, you know, the, our area was, um, was one of the first hotspots. So Santa Clara County, where Palo Alto is located, was one of the first hotspots um, in the country along the West Coast. Um, and as you know, we came to the uh, in-shelter decision as a state, probably we were the first state here in California, but our counties, um, the six counties surrounding, did that about four days before the state went into shelter. So um, we've been at this probably as long as um, anyone has thus far. And it's been really interesting. Like I felt over the first um, few weeks, there was the normal anticipated chaos of not knowing you know, where we are, what's going on, what we're doing. Um, but I've got to say, like each week, the chaos murkiness seemed a lot less. Um, and as we've been going, I feel like we've kind of reached, um, you know, a a different level of, um, of control. So in our institution right now at Stanford Hospital, there are less than 10 people that are um, in the hospital that are uh, sick with COVID. Um, our county has about 2,000 cases overall and about 175 people are hospitalized. They've deployed about 20,000 tests um, in this area that have been performed and it's about a 9% positivity rate, which is um, higher than most um, as we go through there. So our department, um, you know, in the ambulatory setting, you know, we, we kind of have a, a large footprint um, and we're down to about 25% of what we usually do in terms of business, um, which is, you know, it, it seems par for the course. Um, what I'm guessing from talking to my friends and colleagues in the area is that, you know, most folks are still, um, um, you know, making their offices available for emergencies and uh, injections and everyone's doing retinal detachments as they see fit. Uh, but for the most part, uh, elective surgeries uh, is way down. And I think that's been, that's a good thing. Um, and, uh, you know, we're looking in the next couple of weeks to ramp things back up again, which I'm sure we'll get to as we're uh, discussing today. Now, and I want to take just a moment here to remind our viewers, if you're watching on Facebook Live or if you're uh, tuned in through Zoom, you can ask and submit questions uh, that we'll go over it in the middle or at the end of the uh, talk. Prithvi, back to you. Um, have you heard of or do you have any residents or fellows that are being asked to staff the emergency departments of the ICUs? Uh, no, um, that hasn't happened to any of our uh, trainees in our department. Um, and maybe that just goes with just the nature of how uh, much we've been 
not crushed as I thought we, we all would be, uh, at least in our part of the world. Uh, and Sharon, same question to you. Have you had any of your fellows or residents be recruited or trained to work in any other departments? Uh, no, we haven't. You know, North Carolina put a, a safer at home order, I think, pretty early compared to other states in relation to our numbers rising, our COVID positivity numbers rising. So we have not seen the surge that we were expecting. And so as a result, uh, none of the ophthalmology faculty, fellows, or residents have been repurposed or redeployed uh, at all throughout the hospital. And because uh, Duke is such a large institution, we have a lot of depth with uh, CRNAs, anesthesiologists, pulmonary, critical care, infectious disease, primary care, and so on. So we're way down on the list. That's a good thing. And Tom, what about in Miami? Did they prepare you to potentially work in any other departments or any of your fellows to work other places? Well, they, we went through an exercise where all of the uh, faculty and staff had to fill out a questionnaire that targeted what skills you might have that would be useful in a medical ICU. And uh, uh, that was uh, a little bit uh, uh, humiliating for me. I, I wound up feeling most comfortable with janitorial services and I, I figured I could do the phones. But in terms of you know, doing lines and so forth, I, uh, central lines, I was able to do that uh, 20 years ago, but I haven't done it in, in a long time. But they, they had that as a category, you know, it was trained in it, but haven't done it in quite a while. And that was the box I was checking off on everything. So they have, a, they have an inventory of who's available to help should they need us. But thankfully so far, neither any of the uh, attending staff or the, uh, the training staff has been employed. Uh, on the medical services. And back to you here, Tom. Um, how many fellows do you have now at Bascom Palmer in Retina? And, and what are they doing on a day-to-day -day basis? Are they working in clinic? Are they going to the ORs? How are you utilizing them? Yeah, so, so uh, uh, as far as the surgical uh, Retina Fellowship, we, we have uh, eight fellows, so four in each year, including uh, two chief residents. Uh, and uh, it depends on who's, which attendings rotation there are. Some uh, attendings have different philosophies of it. Different attendings have different clinic volumes. For example, in my clinic, I'm continuing to do all the anti-VEGF injections that I think uh, really need to be done. And I'm seeing patients with active uveitis uh, and uh, even some follow-up uh, pediatric uveitis that with the children that are on a, immunomodulatory agents. So, uh, so I've had some clinic, I'm down probably, I don't know, 60 to 70% of my normal volume. Um, but uh, I still feel that the, the fellow really doesn't need to come to clinic with me. Uh, other attendings uh, still have the fellows in clinic with them. My idea is to really minimize the exposure that we have to one another. Um, so the fellows are operating with me, going to the operating room, and they're helping the, the residents uh, staff the emergency room. I initially thought that we would have a real explosion of our emergency department as private practices closed down. But I think what's happening is that patients, even with problems, are just not coming in seeking care anywhere. So our, our, our emergency room volume has gone up maybe a little bit, but I hear it's only up about 20% or so of normal. Um, and uh, the residents and the fellows are, are taking care of that primarily. 
And Sharon, what about at Duke? How many fellows do you have in Retina and what are they doing? So at any given time, we have four surgical retina fellows, uh, two in each year. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a delicate balance. So we've had some discussions um, uh, among the faculty, with and without the fellows, having these discussions about the balance of their education at this important time, as well as protecting them from uh, catching and or spreading COVID. Uh, so right now we have them on a one week on, one week off rotation. So we have a first and second year um, available for week one, and then a first and second year fellow available for week two, uh, someone who's clinic based and someone who's operating room based. Um, and we're merging that in with the on-call schedule. Um, so it's been a delicate balance, but they're still in the mix, but maybe not quite as much. And the fellows who are off, are they just spending time at home or are they doing some sort of research? Uh, what are their duties? Writing papers for Sharon Fekrat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, right, when they're off, right, sometimes one might get called in if we're running um, two operating rooms, for example, but um, we're only operating on urgent cases. But yes, they have uh, a lot of research to catch up on. One is putting together a K grant um, and there's a lot of phone calls and other things to manage. And so, Prithvi, for you, um, first of all, what's the, what, how many fellows do you have at Stanford, and what's their status currently? Yeah, so we have uh, three fellows, so two first-year and one uh, second-year fellow. And um, we're also in three different sites. So we have a VA and a county hospital in our main home base. Um, and as clinics and ORs have kind of come down in those other um, sites, then it all kind of uh, re- uh, adds up here at the home base where we cover the hospitals and such. So I think a lot of what we were doing in the beginning was um, in just kind of deploying people as they needed. So taking care of inpatient consults and um, helping out in clinics. But as clinic volumes have gone way down, um, I think that the fellows have been, um, you know, to kind of we're encouraging them to kind of just take care of what needs to be taken care of. So we're triaging them. Um, to make sure that they cover cases and clinics as they need to. Um, there's enough downtime that they're taking care of other things and working on their research and, and things of such. But I will say this, you know, we, we have our fellows here at Stanford also run a, an urgent care clinic, so which is kind of a scheduled slash walk-in clinic for anything. And that, that could be, you know, dry eye or anything that comes in. The acuity of the patients that are coming into that now are much higher. So mm -hmm. much like Tom's saying that they're not all just coming in for small stuff, but when they come in, it's like really bad stuff. So um, our fellows are actually dealing with a lot of really bad uveitis and, um, you know, eyes that are exploding that just are walking in um, as patients are trying to make those decisions uh, to come in or not. Um, I think the hard part initially was just what they were doing in the hospital as they were trying to figure out, you know, what was appropriate protection and what wasn't. So seeing consults, that type of thing. And similar to what Sharon said, we've um, engaged our fellows as a group. We kind of had a little chat um, amongst the fellows with just a few of us just so they can, you know, air their concerns. And mainly it was around things like PPE and um, understanding surgical guidelines. And this is for all the fellows, not just retina, um, you know, which cases are truly elective, which are um, emergent and, you know, are there cases that should or shouldn't be done at this time period? 
And then we had this you know, kind of larger group chat with all the program directors so that we can address all these issues um, as they're coming forward. And I think the hard part is that residents, I think, are treated differently. Um, they're kind of yeah. you know, run by their program directors and the ACGME. And our fellowships are not ACGME certified. They are you know, run at the department level and at, at, the, at the individual you know, division level. Um, and I feel like we're so used to our fellows just kind of doing everything with us, like, you know, right at, at our uh, right hand and our left hand, um, that sometimes the communication flow really didn't connect. So the faculty would all be like, you know, perseverating about, you know, what kind of mask to wear and, you know, what's happening in surgery. And the fellow would just kind of hear about it through osmosis or all of us kind of just talking about it in between, um, you know, clinic lanes. So I think we're trying to be a little bit more um, formative in just how we kind of bring up this stuff with the fellows. And I think that's been helpful for them um, so that they feel like they're getting the information that comes through. And I think that was a departmental um, direction that I think you know, made a difference. But um, at this point, we're trying to not have them around if they don't need to be. So Prithvi, one of the things that we're hearing time and time again from all the speakers is how important communication is in this time, do you, do you have one person that's a point person for communicating with fellows? How do you best communicate? Um, yeah, so uh, we, we text a lot. So um, we have a chat amongst um, our faculty um, with our fellows, so all the retina faculty and the fellows are on what's, what's app group and you know, we're sharing information uh, back and forth. Um, I meet with them at least on uh, text you know, pretty regularly and you know, I'm around in clinic um, more than I thought I'd be. Like I'm you know, surprisingly, I, I come in every day. You know, I'm not, I, I wish, I wanna be Sharon's fellow where I get the week to kind of hang out at home, but it doesn't always happen. Um, but it's, um, so, you know, so we bump into them, like we're doing cases together. Um, but I think also from a departmental standpoint, I think one thing that's been helpful is that, you know, we do have um, department-wide emails going around. We're including the mm -hmm. fellows and the faculty level, you know, discussions because they are doing cases on call, that type of thing. They need to know the rules that are happening, uh, rule changes that are happening at the hospital level. Um, so I think that's helpful. And I think um, the communication is also one-on-one. -on -one. I think just sometimes, you know, chatting with them because they are really you know more first line than than the attendings are in many cases. So um, a lot of the the pent up fears and concerns that we all just voice amongst ourselves um, and to our colleagues, you know, it's important to hear you know their point of view with it as well. So just sometimes, just how are you doing? How are things going? Um, I think goes a long way um, for uh, for our trainees. Now, Sharon, as we get back towards working again in the next few weeks. Is preservation of PPE still critical or is that now kind of a, a bygone problem? I think um, the use and conservation of PPE is an issue that is not going to be going away anytime soon. Um, once we start ramping back up and here at Duke, we are talking about potentially starting some elective surgery and elective patients about mid-May depending how the next week or two goes. And PPE is still going to be a very um, important concern for everyone because right now at Duke, all staff are required to wear surgical masks. Uh, all visitors and patients and people coming in are also required to wear surgical masks. 
Um, we recently got a donation of a million surgical masks, which I think has kind of eased the burden. And then we're also um, sterilizing with aerosolized hydrogen peroxide. We're sterilizing um, N95s and reusing them. So that's taken a little bit of the uh, concern about not being properly protected. But I think we as ophthalmologists and retina specialists, when we're in our mm -hmm. patient's faces doing injections and we're up close and personal examining them, we really do need to be protected. And we saw the recent statement from the ASRS about how we should protect ourselves. And so it's going to be an ongoing issue until there's either a vaccine or an effective treatment, I think. And Tom, at Bascom Palmer, are you beholden to the University of Miami as far as when you start back up? Um, or, or, or is Bascom autonomous from that? They can decide their own start date. Uh, I'm not sure that I, I know the answer to that question. My, I'm pretty sure that, that, we, that anything we do will be coordinated with the university as a whole. Um, so I think there's a lot coming from top down on this and, and a lot is probably even coming from higher up than, than the, uh, than the Dean, you know, I think this is probably all stemming from the governor too, as we're having a coordinated effort to, to open things back up. So, you know, I, I would echo that. I think while, while things are, uh, as I said, in the beginning, there is some, some light at the end of the tunnel, things may be a little bit better than anticipated. I would agree that we, we still have uh, shortages in protective equipment um, that really are very suboptimal. I mean, I use the same, uh, I get an N95 every time I operate. So that's, that's and I like to wear it in clinic. I, uh, I think if you have access to one, you should. So I have a couple of them and I rotate through them and, uh, and uh, try various ways of disinfecting them. But um, but, you know, I think ideally we'd all have uh, open access to all of those things. And then testing is also still, you know, really very uh, shorthanded. We don't, we don't, we have, Bascom Palmer has access to five rapid tests a day, uh, at least as of, as of a day or two ago. And those are basically used for patients that are going into surgery for emergency cases. So we have either pre-op the patient the day before or the morning and then get a test result back on their COVID status. So far, we haven't operated on a COVID positive patient, but we are checking for COVID for each case. And, uh, you know, ideally we'd have testing for all the staff, but we just, we just don't have it. So I think, yeah, until we get all that stuff, we'll be far away from an ideal situation. So let me ask you this, Tom, and I'll put you on the spot. Should fellows be scrubbing in and operating? Well, I have to answer yes, if I'm going to be honest, because I just did two cases today with my fellows. Uh, now, of course, these were COVID negative patients. So if it was a COVID positive patient, I might have a different answer. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, I think this is a, a very um, a troubling experience for the fellows to have lost all these cases. So I think the Detriment's going to be 10 to 20% probably on, on, on the average fellow's case log uh, that's going to be cut out by this, depending on how fast we go back to, to normal. So I think whatever cases they can get, the detachments that are coming in, uh, especially if they're COVID negative, I think the, the, the fellows should be helping out on those. Sharon, let me ask you the same question. Should fellows be operating? 
Well, I do think that this is part of their education because this is not going to, COVID-19 will not be going away. And so uh, anytime soon. And so I think it's important for them to know uh, how to wear PPE for a COVID positive patient, how to manage their emotions while, uh, and their fears while operating on somebody who's COVID positive. And it's almost better to learn in this environment and sort of learn together. Uh, so that when they go out, they're able to handle it. And Prithvi, same question, should fellows be operating? Um, yeah, I think fellows should be operating. I think, you know, done safely. Um, I'll add to what Sharon said is that I think there are opportunities, um, you know, even in this time. So ours is not a very um, active pneumatic retinopexy institution. Um, and over the past two weeks, you know, we've probably done more as a group um, trying to temporize patients that we think might you know, get away with um, you know, good uh, results with a pneumatic, whereas before they would have probably gone straight to surgery. So um, it has you know, provided an opportunity for fellows to maybe do things that they, you know, at least in our training program, that may, maybe they wouldn't have done as much of otherwise. Um, I've had a patient who was COVID positive that needed an enucleation for ocular melanoma. Um, and as we were going through the status of, you know, waiting for him to clear and become negative, when, if we had to go in, it was going to be clear that I was going to do that case and there would be no, the fellows would do the paperwork, but they wouldn't be in the OR to, uh, um, to be involved in the case because there's really no need at that point. I mean, you know, it's, I need to get in and get out as quickly as possible. Interestingly, um, you know, as I've been involved in that ASRS um, panel uh, that Daniel Chow has um, uh, led so beautifully um, and probably with some controversy still over applicability. If you look at the Royal College of uh, Surgeons, their guidelines in, in uh, the UK, they're basically being pretty strict about trainees don't need to be involved, um, you know, on most cases. They're just trying to say, you know, consultant level, take care of the case, get out as fast as you can. Um, which, you know, I, I think that's a, that's a point of view, but uh, I think here we're still encouraging them to be part, uh, you know, on cases. Um, have I stepped in a little sooner on some cases just because I just don't want it to go on as long as maybe it could? Uh, yeah, and that's okay. So Prithvi, a question from the audience, actually. Peter Blackburn, who's here in Lexington, uh, asks, is this going to be the new normal? Uh, and what parts of this, Prithvi, are going to be the new normal? Preservation of PPE, you know, all of the precautions we have to take, the decreased volume, the decreased fellow involvement, are these just going to be changes that will be permanent or last for the next year? How long are we looking at? Uh, I'm the eternal optimist. Um, so I think that, you know, we will come back to, um, you know, what we all consider um, more normal. Um, I think, though, that um, there's a lot of information that's still so rapidly evolving and a lot of disinformation that's out there and just a lot of raw fear. So as I'm talking to our friends and colleagues um, who are very smart individuals and who are trained in medicine, um, you know, there, there's a raw gut emotion that comes into you know, being protected and you know, making sure that they're safe and their families are safe and patients are safe um, that kind of goes beyond logic sometimes. So um, I think to answer the question, I think the, the notion of um, enhanced protection with PPE, uh, testing, knowing the status of your patient, all these things um, are still going to be you know, part of our, you know, our activities and vocabularies for some time. 
Um, and I kind of look back to it like the HIV era when you know there was you would just presume someone was HIV positive and do everything you know you double glove and you'd be extra careful with needles and that just kind of became part of our our every everyday uh, practice. And I think similarly, this is going to you know, adjust what our everyday is, is going to be. Um, I think we will get better supply chains. I think we'll have better ways to reuse things. I think we'll learn more about what is actually protective and what isn't. Um, and, I, and I honestly feel like a month ago, like the level of sheer panic uh, about anything to do with surgery and with patients now a month later, we're talking about, you know, starting surgery back up again, you know, where people were saying like, we'll never operate for six months. So I think it's going to get better, um, Peter. I think that, you know, it will take some time, but I think we're going to have to reset what our, our norms are. Um, but I think we'll figure it out. And Sharon, the same question for you, but I'll, I'll couch it a little bit differently. If you're a first year fellow, should you be freaking out that this is going to significantly impact the next year and a half of their of their training? Yeah, you know, I would say no, uh, especially since, you know, here at Duke and many other places, we've sort of put a pause on elective patients and surgical procedures mid-March. And so we're all now talking about reopening to some degree in mid-May. So that's about a two-month pause. Um, Other places in the country that are harder hit are going to pause longer. But I think that all of those patients that are sitting at home right now and not coming in with their flashes and floaters and their visual field defect um, or a blurred central vision are going to start coming in. And so at Duke, we're planning on uh, having clinics and operating on evenings and weekends uh, once we start back up to sort of make up uh, for the lost time. So I think that should help tremendously. Tom, are you guys going to do weekend and evening clinics to catch up? Um, And do you think that that will allow the fellows to catch up volume-wise? I hope so. Uh, We already have some limited weekend clinics. I mean, we had. We don't have them now, but we did before. Um, So uh, I don't know how much capacity we have. um, And uh, we were sort of, we were kind of at peak capacity in terms of our staffing. We were limited by staff and by number of rooms. So I don't know how much more we can, we can push that out uh, to really expand. And our operating rooms are pretty full too. Um, So, you know, we, we, we had two rooms, sometimes three rooms routinely going till eight o'clock at night. Now it's gotten, it's gotten pretty busy. Um, So I, I don't, I don't know, uh, you know, how much more we can add, but I also don't, I'm not sure how quickly all of that is going to come back in. I don't know how quickly, even if we open back up, how quickly people are going to feel comfortable coming back to the hospital. I've been really impressed by how much people are staying away, especially uh, the elderly. So we'll have to see how it goes. I think that in terms of the new normal, I'll, I'll plug two positive things I think that have come out of this. You know, I think telemedicine has has uh, really caught on, at least at Bascom. I'm sure that's true at the other centers. Uh, we, a, a lot of providers are doing a lot, a lot of telemedicine, and there's been an opening up of those codes where you can get a significant reimbursement for a telemedicine visit. So I, I don't know if that's going to stay once the crisis is quote unquote over, but uh, but that's something that I think will probably be added to our armamentarium. And the other one is Zoom. You know, I think Zoom is probably going to stick around at some level. I don't think we'll be Zooming all the time, I hope. But I think there'll be a lot of things that we used to do 
uh, flying someplace for the weekend to meet each other that, we, that we're probably now comfortable doing by Zoom. So I think, I think those are two good things that have come out of this. And, and Tom, what are some of the online resources that fellows can access uh, and some opportunities that they have for different learning during this downtime? You know, I'd be remiss not to plug the uh, Bitbuckle Academy uh, that has some learning resources there, as limited as they are, but that's something that folks can look into. But uh, I think the mainstay that I've heard our fellows have been uh, working with the ASRS website, and there's been now hours and hours of lectures uh, that have been put on there um, that they can listen to. So I think you've got to make the best out of this situation. Um, it's definitely suboptimal, but this is a good time uh, to really do research, to read, to, to look into these lectures. And there's so much of the, this Zooming content that's out there too, at all different levels for residents and, and fellows that, uh, that can be taken advantage of. And Sharon, you guys do an absolute fantastic fellows meeting uh, every year before Arvo. Uh, thoughts about doing future meetings online or how is this gonna change how you educate fellows both within Duke and outside of Duke? Well, the fellows AVS that we had planned for April was obviously uh, postponed and it's currently scheduled in September. Uh, but now with the Retina Society changing their September meeting to virtual, I think that is something that we're going to be discussing as a group, whether we want to have the um, future meeting, which is now scheduled in September, uh, virtual on a Zoom platform. And, you know, we've been holding grand rounds at the Duke Eye Center and also our Mockamer uh, retina surgical rounds on Zoom and everyone attends. Uh, we had several hundred at our grand rounds, which is uh, much better than the usual 30 or 40 that we have in person. So I think that it, it offers the opportunity to have greater attendance um, as well. So, so we'll see. I think we're probably going to really discuss making it, at least in 2020, a virtual meeting. And Prithvi, for Stanford being in the middle of kind of that technological hub um, in the uh, Silicon Valley area, what are you all doing as far as virtual meetings um, and education of fellows? And, and what are some opportunities outside of Stanford that fellows across the nation can take advantage of? We just still write notes to each other on paper and then we mail it. Is that, is that what you're asking? Um, so I think our, fe our fellows, um, um, you know, we've been doing journal clubs uh, on Zoom. Um, we have our surgical rounds um, coming up this week that we've actually invited other institutions to be a part of. Um, and, um, you know, we can make that available to anybody. Um, so I think that the, the more we've been doing, um, you know, within our own group, we realize that others are doing the same thing and there's a, a lot of opportunities there. I echo what Tom said about the ASRS um, uh, lecture series that's happening now through COVID. There's some like great lectures. I wish I could listen to some of them as well. I think one of the issues is that there is a little fatigue that can happen with Zooming as we know. Um, and I didn't kind of get that with our fellows because they're still like seeing the consults and like dealing with like resident cases and preparing for their stuff. And here I am like adding another journal club, like, you know, cause I thought it's like they're bored or something. So I think that um, some of that has to be 
um, that's part of the new world, I guess. That is part of the new normal, just trying to sort out, you know, timing. I've also um, encouraged them to kind of keep their hands as um, moving as possible. So this is a time, especially for first-year fellows, if they have access to a surgical simulator um, or to do just suturing. I mean, we, I don't think we've gotten to the point where we've stopped everything. I, I, I was presuming that, you know, there'd be no cases happening at some point, but um, you know, I've been you know, encouraging the fellows to actually just to suture and to to do things in the practice lab, which again is an opportunity to kind of keep their uh, their hands moving and ready to go um, whenever things come back on again. Um, there are a lot of videos to watch on iTube, a couple by John Kitchens that are pretty good. Um, I mean, you can learn a lot in different ways. Um, so it's uh, it's all good to kind of come in. And then also um, the nice thing is a lot of these. Um, uh, the research meetings are moving their abstract deadlines out a little bit. So you have an extra month for Retina Society and AAO is pushed back. So it's an opportunity for fellows to kind of get projects together and you know who knows when and where they'll present them in what format, but it's still important for them to kind of have these experiences uh, for the next step. Yeah, and no excuse. I was asked, yes, I was asked, uh, Prithvi, uh, by industry, um, what should their role be in supporting the fellows right now? That's a, a great question. So I think that they can make available um, a lot of you know, education opportunities. So any kinds of lectures or materials, I think they can help to um, help organize or coordinate um, greater interaction across the country or around the world. So, um, you know, things like journal clubs or, you know, case discussion conferences or supporting maybe even better uh, media for us to have these meetings in. Zoom is great, but maybe there are better ways to have, you know, panel discussions or people to show cases. I think that the technology aspect of it can actually um, be taken a, a level beyond what we have right now, um, you know, for our fellows. Um, so I think that they should be actively involved. They should be like, you know, promoting education as much as, as much as possible. And I think they have to be ready for when meetings start back up again in whatever form they are to come up with more creative ways to um, get that information across to fellows. I think, you know, this is back to the times of, you know, cracking a book sometimes and, um, you know, just like reading, but then having that ability to feed back with folks um, to, you know, know what you learned is really important or, or not. And Sharon, any thoughts on industry's participation in helping fellows during this time? You know, I agree with everything that Prithvi said. Um, you know, they also, industry may be able to do uh, online in-services to sort of teach them the machine, right? So it's always on the to-do list of the fellows, like, oh, I need to get in there and spend time learning that constellation or, or learning the um, Bachelom elite and so I think that um, this would be a good time and that would be very helpful. Industry can also uh, create a Zoom session and show a lot of their different instruments and, and sort of teach them about what's available. And I think so there's a lot of learning to be done um, in that way. And that's sort of on the fellows to-do list. And Tom, Vitbuckle, always supported by industry. What are your thoughts on how industry can help with the fellows training right now? You know, uh, being the last one to answer this, I'll say I agree with everything that's been said. And I, you know, I think it's important for industry to try to be creative about what they're doing. But I think disease awareness uh, uh, type talks and, and what was mentioned, you know, going through drugs or devices and 
the fellows are really always curious. I think nationwide, you'll find a, a quorum of fellows that are interested in almost any topic, be it uveitis or tumors or any anything uh, within retina. Um, that they, they, that they could do. And I, I, I can't tell them what exactly, but I think if you can be creative about it, you'll get an interest in, in what you're doing. And uh, I think uh, help the way industry helped Bitbuckle to transition from our, um, from our physical meeting that we had to cancel to, uh, to our online meeting that just happened last night, um, you know, it was fantastic. So we had a lot of support uh, industry-wide. And I think if they can reach out to all the varied groups that they support throughout the throughout the country, I'm sure that they'll they'll get a lot of uh, creative ideas about how to help and what what we can do. I like Sharon's idea about the virtual in service. I think that's a really good point. We were doing that with our ultrasound folks and that type of thing, but I think that's a great idea to be able to you know, hook them up with, uh, with their local rep and just run through the machine. And yeah. um, that's super easy. Hopefully all of our surgical equipment makers are watching this and we'll, we'll take those words of advice. Great, great uh, idea, Sharon. Let's transition over to job search. And first year fellows right now, it's a really critical time to make connections and go to meetings and do interviews and they may not have that opportunity. Uh, Sharon, what's your advice to first year fellows who are looking for jobs? I think their search uh, may need to be a little more focused than it typically is. So I think they need to really sit down and talk with their families um, and really reflect and think about where in the country they want to be um, and whether they really want an academic position um, with a university or a position that's not affiliated with the university and may have a focus search and really go for what they want. So if they want to be in, let's say, Detroit, then they really need to look and have a focused search and um, specifically ask questions. So I think it's going to be uh, a narrowed search and may actually turn out to be less expensive too. And Prithvi, are you finding that first year fellows are, are having trouble finding jobs, making connections? So um, I think ours are, this time of year, just kind of getting into that mode right now. Um, I think the fact that we missed out on Arvo, which would have been one place for folks to start uh, making connections has, um, you know, has been an issue. Um, I kind of look at it in a couple different ways. Um, I think there's opportunities and I think that there's challenges. So um, some of the opportunities that we've been hearing about are, you know, maybe some older practitioners who are considering retiring um, instead of waiting another couple of years, they, this has kind of pushed them to making that decision maybe a little sooner. So there may be opportunities within, you know, private practices that have, um, you know, a, a various, various ages of partners um, to bring on a new associate. So I think that's an opportunity. I think the academic side can be plus minus. I think there's always the need, you know, for departments to grow and find folks to fill in those needs. But there are unknown realities of what university hiring and firing is going to be all about. So we don't know even if, you know, you were promised to finish your fellowship and come back and join a certain university, whether um, those deals can get closed at the same uh, time point. So I would still say, you know, you got to follow your heart. If, you know, if the fellow really wants to be in academics and has kind of made that their, their uh, goal, then 
you know, great, but just understand that 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 signature on the dotted line may not happen till like the day before you're going to start. I think that that's going to be um, a little bit unknown um, as they go through. Um, I think it's really important um, to figure out, you know, I would say instead of a shorter net, probably a broader net is what I've been telling my fellows. Um, and um, some of that comes with just really, you know, you know, kind of bashing on the doors to see what's available. Um, I think though that there's a certain like etiquette about like this time to start you know, making those conversations. Like I don't think I'd call today, um, which means that everything is going to get pushed a little bit. And I think you know, folks getting their contracts by October, November um, for this cycle of fellows might be more like January, February next year before things get finalized. Um, and practices are up and going. And, and I guess what I don't know is larger groups that are in private equity, um, you know, their, their models are to grow and expand. And, you know, if there's backing to still do that, um, then those are still further opportunities for folks to join as an associate um, in some of these larger um, PE practices. Tom, I'm going to ask this a little bit different for you. Is, is Bascom still planning on hiring the same number of physicians that they were planning on hiring pre-COVID or have they pulled back some of those, some of those job opportunities and, and offers? And then what's your advice to first-year fellows starting to look for jobs? I think uh, the honest answer to your first question is I don't know. Um, I think that we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what happens. I mean, we have some people that we were actively – negotiating with and and um, I know that in at least one instance it's not re I, from what I've heard it's not clear that we have the opportunity to hire that person even if we wanted to even if our budgets allowed it um, considering the trouble that the medical school is in I've heard figures like we're losing two million dollars a day as a uh, as a as a health provider as a, the entire across the whole institute so I think um, uh, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen. It is a big, it is a big question mark, and I'm not even sure that my chairman clearly understands how this is going to unfold. But I think um, uh, to your second question about what I would advise a first year is, I think um, uh, you have to have realistic expectations. This is a once in a hundred year problem. This is something that we can't really tell you what the outcome is going to be. None of us, none of us know what it is. And it, it, it at least has the potential to be really bad. So I, I don't know, between private equity changes, uh, which had made some of our fellows a little bit less excited about some of the jobs they might have really wanted in the past, um, and now this real hit to academic uh, health centers and to the overall economy, um, it's not a rosy picture, to say the least. So what I would say is have realistic expectations. On the other hand, be creative and try to make the best out of this that you can. Try to turn it into something that's going to help you be a better doctor, better scientist uh, in the long term, be that, you know, more research, more education in some way, um, or more clinical skills that you can gather. But um, if you can't get to the next step that you wanted to get to and it's just been closed off, figure out something else you can do to make yourself better. Let's talk a little bit about incoming fellows. Um, Sharon, what's the best way for incoming fellows to kind of prepare for what they're going to encounter? 
Well, I think incoming fellows in general uh, can prepare by reading, reading, reading before they start their fellowship. And as um, Prithvi mentioned earlier, to get involved with the virtual reality simulator and get a lot of experience sort of before they start. Um, we're hoping that we'll be um, at least halfway ramped up by then. Uh, you know, July and August typically at Duke is a time when a lot of us had taken our kind of annual vacation. And so it's usually a pretty slow time at our institution. Um, and so if that brings us into September, right, I think hopefully we'll be busier at that point. And will the current fellows need any extended time or extended opportunities, or do you think they, they will have enough volume to be able to finish on time? Well, our second year fellows right now who will be finishing in really two months, uh, their numbers are really quite good. And so they're, they're actually ready to, you know, launch off the launching pad. Um, so I think they're ready. And then the first year fellows will uh, hopefully have time, as we talked about earlier, to catch up. Prithi, what would you say to an incoming first year fellow that doesn't know the Stanford system? What should they be doing right now to get themselves ready and what should they expect? Yeah, the reality is that um, a lot of residents um, are probably putting like their high volume cataract rotation like right before they finish residency, right? So I think that it's possible that they could be losing, you know, a quarter um, or more of like their overall uh, ramp up surgical volume. So I think um, as much as they can do in their departments, I think is important. Um, I think being involved with as many retina cases as they can um, do you know, on call, off call, you know, just to kind of get that, that, that taste of it, I think is important. I would suture like, you know, three hours every week, forehand, backhand, left hand, right hand. I think that they just need to be facile with, with those things up front. Otherwise, um, it's going to be that much slower um, when they start. And I think, you know, similarly, summers can be slow and it's a time to ramp them up anyways. Um, and I think we all have various rotations where we put these fellows on. So it's, it's going to be a little slower, but maybe more time to take more time with them on cases because um, you're not trying to get through as many in a day. Um, so maybe you can do a little bit more with the new fellows. Who knows? Tom, I'm going to ask you a different question, which is you're a resident now thinking about applying to Retina Fellowship. Give me some reasons why they should and why they shouldn't perhaps consider a retina fellowship in this COVID era. Um, I think that uh, I don't think COVID should change your career plans that much, really. Um, I think COVID is hitting everything pretty equally across the boards. It's not hitting retina any harder or softer than the other uh, fellowships in ophthalmology. So I think that if your path was going towards retina, I think it would be a big mistake to pull out of retina because of any of these things that we've discussed, because they're really going to hit everything equally. Um, I, you know, I think my message is really the same message, and that is make the best out of a bad time of what you can do. And I think the advice that we've gotten here about, you know, surgical practicing, see if you can get access to a simulator, do as much as you can. There's tons of surgical video, watch all the surgical video. I mean, there's no reason why if you if you have three days off a week, let's say, or something, because your residency has slowed down, or or even just one day a week, uh, you can't you can't now you know watch 
uh, a ton of, of surgical video and you can really learn a tremendous amount from watching uh, John Kitchens and other uh, exemplar surgeons operating. Uh, so, you know, I think, I think um, just make the best of, of what you can do. There's, but I, I wouldn't change any career decisions based on any of this because the, the environment is way too dynamic. We don't know by the time you finish your fellowship, the world could be something completely different and, and hopefully will be. And look, in retina, like we are one of the few people in all of ophthalmology that have cases that require surgery to be done and, you know, that, that patients really have to come in. And, you know, I do feel for a lot of our anterior segment colleagues who are really, you know, not able to safely see patients um, even today, but, you know, we're in a field where, you know, our patients need to come in or they have emergencies. And that's another reason why many of us chose to go into retina in the first place. Um, uh, I'll also add, as Tom said, you know, you can watch a surgical video, a John Kitchen's video. Um, you could probably just, you know, call John himself. He's a nice guy. But, you know, you can use that, you know, experience and, you know, watch the video with your surgical mentor. Like, you know, if you have a slow day in the OR um, and you're assigned to that person, you know, be proactive. Like, you know, find things that you want them to talk to you about. You know, this is the time to kind of just, you know, think about things and, you know, why'd you do this or why'd you do that? Um, I think it's still an opportunity. Still record your cases. Still, you know, you'll have more time to review them. Um, you know, edit your cases and submit them somewhere to, you know, a forum for fellows to show. I mean, these are all skills that will make you marketable, um, will make you, you know, better at what you do. Um, you can't just, you know, you could watch Netflix all day, but, you know, maybe there's other options. You can definitely call me and I'll give you good suggestions for Netflix. <laughs> Prithvi, um, you, uh, you guys do a fairly early interview. I think Duke does as well. In-person interviews or do you think we'll be doing virtual interviews this year? Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I, I'd like to be able to say that we're going to uh, meet everybody in person. Um, but I don't know. And what I think may happen is Academy might become a, an important, um, you know, function in the fall if that still goes on. I think that there will be a lot of, you know, meeting up and I think there probably needs to be some better coordination of that. If everyone's trying to schedule, like meet the fellow applicants um, at Academy, I think that, you know, we might have to do this by committee of like, you know, six programs in one room and six in another. I don't know. Um, and then, and then I'll go out for dinner or something, but I think that it's going to be, um, th this might be a situation where in a changing world, um, you know, we have online interviews. And so we've been starting to talk about it. You know, we, we had David Park on the program last week and he was very, very certain that we would be having the American Academy of Ophthalmology meeting in one form or another in person. So, uh, I certainly think it's full steam ahead for that in Las Vegas in November. Sharon Duke also does a very early interview. Do you think it's going to be in person? Do you think it'll be virtual or do you think it'll be at Academy? Well, if I had to guess um, about the Academy first, I suspect that given the international attendance of the Academy, that there is a reasonable chance that may become virtual. Um, but our interviews are slated this year for early November. So they are the first weekend in November. And I've just started to think about that. So I think with the Retina Society going virtual in September, I think if the Academy does go virtual, I think a lot of our interviews are gonna end up going virtual. 
And Tom, what about you? When, when is Bascom's interview um, uh, or interviews and do you think it'll be in person or virtual? I don't have the dates. I think it's in late November, mid, mid to late November. But uh, I think that um, uh, I'm hopeful. You know, I, I prefer in-person interviews. I prefer interviewees coming to the, to the institution. I really do think that there's not only a lot to be gained by actually physically seeing the campus that you're going to be working at in the, in the I Institute where you're, where you're going to be potentially, um, but it's also a really nice ritual to travel all of the major I Institutes in the country and meet all the people in, in our profession. Uh, we're a wonderful group of folks, so I think that would be a real loss if that, that doesn't continue um, culturally for us. But uh, so I really hope that we go back to the way we used to do things. But of course, you know, if we can't, we can't. So we'll, we'll see what happens. And if and we last... do have in-person interviews, I think we might not shake hands. <laughs> I, I think that's a, that's a very bold prediction, Sharon, but I think you're probably right about that. Last... I'm wearing an N95 mask, especially <laughs> if I'm interviewing anybody from Kentucky. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Um, so two questions, Tom, starting with you. Um, how do you see this playing out over the next six to 12 months? And I know that's hard, but just give me an estimate. And then words of advice or encouragement that you have for fellows. You know, I think uh, the biggest words of encouragement that I have is you've chosen the best field in medicine. I think, uh, you know, for those of us that have gotten this far, this is a tremendous, a tremendous field. Um, and, um, and that, that's the most important thing. These other things will all work themselves out. I mean, you know, we're all going to, this is a bad time. There's no doubt. And there's going to be some of my fellows that are going to have a bad time of it. So far, really all of them are doing well. We have one fellow who's got a job issue. He had a visa issue and he delayed uh, applying for, for jobs. And now the COVID thing hit. So, you know, but, but for the most part, they're already all spoken for. Uh, the second years that are going out and, and, um, and the first years, I think already some of them have some, some good leads. So, um, so that's good. And they're, and they're working hard and they're happy. And, and I really hope that, you know, that, that within the next six months, we're back to normal surgical volume so that they can get their cases in and do uh, traction retinal detachments, all the things that we're not doing now at all, um, that they can start doing those cases again. So, um, you know, I, 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 I'm optimistic. I think we're going to get back to normal. If we get a second wave of coronavirus and this becomes an every six month thing, I, I don't know what's going to happen to the whole country, but um, uh, it has the potential to really be disastrous. But I think if I had to put my money on it, I think we'll get back to normal uh, over the next six months. And I think uh, the fellows are going to do just great. And I think don't, don't let this change your plans. I think keep, keep going forward with whatever you had in your heart before it. Sharon, for you, how do you see this playing out? And then words of advice or encouragement for fellows? Well, you know, I hope it goes away. I hope it goes away really quickly, this COVID environment and the pandemic. Um, but the more I read and talk to others, I think that it's going to become the new normal and it's going to stick around for a while until we have a really good treatment or, you know, an effective vaccine that works better than our flu vaccine. So I think we're going to find ways to work around it and we will ramp back up, but with the appropriate PPE, um, you know, here at Duke, we're doing 600 tests a day and all patients that go to the OR get tests uh, tested because we have in-house testing. But I think that I would not let this um, 
you know, negatively affect someone's plans. You don't want to look back as a fellow and look back, oh, I wish I didn't make that decision based on COVID. I think you should go, you know, all out in what you were hoping to achieve and where you were hoping to work. And Prithvi, finally, um, how do you see it playing out and advice for fellows? Yeah, so um, you, you have to be the optimist here or else, you know, it's you go, go back, go back home and get into bed. Um, I think that it, it is, um, things will get uh, better. And I think that there will be a new reset and a new normal. It's look, it's an opportunity, right? So, you know, like we're talking about video visits and things that are so um, far from what we normally do as retina specialists that now we're like peering into it. There's still drug development and there's new therapies that are still happening with our industry colleagues, like that's not going to change. I think there's still going to be disease that needs to be treated. Um, the environment in which you do it could just be a little different. So, um, you know, the issue now is how, how do we, um, you know, kind of train them to be ready for that. So we're all going to learn and ultimately they'll be fine. I would just say at this point, you can't change tomorrow um, right away. So, you know, kind of it's all going to happen in time. So, you know, don't, don't stress about it more than, you know, that you're able to make an impact on right now. It's, um, it can be overwhelming thinking about what happens tomorrow, next month, the next year. Um, sometimes just kind of what's in front of you and then things should, should work out fine in the future. Well, I want to thank all of our panelists, Prithvi, Sharon, and last but not least, Tom Albini, uh, for joining us tonight on New Retina Radio, COVID-19, how it's affecting and impacting fellows and fellowship. Uh, we will be back next week um, and um, uh, stay positive and stay healthy. Thank you. Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Airy, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.